Welcome to Navigating Consciousness. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and this is a podcast of my talks and conversations. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and leave a review in your favorite podcatcher. It really helps. Good evening. I'm Tim Bolton, Head of Programs here at Dartington. And on behalf of everyone at Schumacher College and Dartington, I'd like to welcome you to this, our fifth talk in Series 2 of our online Joy of Six Schumacher College Earth Talks. And thank you all so much for supporting the work of Schumacher College. We've been holding Earth Talks for a number of years, face-to-face in the Old Poston in the Great Hall at Dartington. It's a fundamental part of our learning community, and we look forward to doing so again, hopefully as soon as September. However, Schumacher College has a very long history of leadership, debate and research around our ecological and environmental catastrophe. And it feels important in this moment of global crisis that we reach out to our community and those in search of a new normal. As in previous talks, the audience appears to be joining us from across the globe. So although most of us are in some form of lockdown, the world feels increasingly interconnected and all of us increasingly interdependent. This talk is the fifth in the series of six, which take place every Wednesday evening, which I hope you'll also want to attend. If you're new to the Online Earth Talks, then all the previous talks are also available on the Schumacher College website, as is an archive of talks from the last few years. This series of talks are formed around the overarching theme, seizing the opportunity for radical transformation. Over the last four months, we have truly stepped into uncharted territory, simultaneously tragic, terrifying and exhilarating. Through COVID-19 and more recently the murder of George Floyd and the international Black Lives Matter movement, we have witnessed both some of the best and the worst that mankind has to offer, and the divisions in our society have never been in sharper focus. Indeed, many of the world's governments have responded with the speed and agility to protect the economy and the well-being of their populations, which completely invalidates their previously lacklustre, slow and cautious responses to our ever-present societal injustice and environmental degradation. This moment feels like almost anything is possible. Almost anything. So how do we resist squandering this opportunity and just return to normal or worse? What ideas exist that we should rush to embrace? So first, a few words about the format of the evening. In a moment, I'll hand over to Rupert Sheldrake to present his talk. At the end, he'll then be joined in conversation for five to ten minutes with Colin Pawson. We do want the session to be as accessible and interactive as possible, so please do use the chat button on the bottom of your screen to share thoughts with us and your fellow audience members. And we'd welcome questions throughout using the Q&A link, again at the bottom of the window. Rupert and Colin might respond to some of the questions as we go along, and I'll have a chance to put other questions to them during and at the end of the conversation. In total, we anticipate the session to last about an hour. So let me start by introducing Colm and Rupert. Colm Paulson initially studied geography and has spent the last 17 years working in agriculture, specialising in horticulture. He's worked on various different projects in Wales and the southwest, including establishing two market gardens, one in Glastonbury and another in Monmouthshire, Wales. He joined the college in 2018 and has recently been appointed head gardener and leads the horticulture programmes at Schumacher College. Dr Rupert Sheldrake is a biologist and author of nine books, including The Science Delusion, Freeing the Spirit of Inquiry, which is called Science Set Free in the US. He was a fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, and a research fellow of the Royal Society. He was then principal plant physiologist at the International Crops Research Institute for the semi-arid tropics in Hyderabad, India. He is a fellow of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California and a fellow of Schumacher College. So it's with very great pleasure that I hand you over to Rupert. Hello, good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be part of this series of Earth Talks. I've given quite a few live Earth Talks um, in Dartington and at Schumacher College. Um, This is the first time I've done one in a virtual form. Um, 
And I'm talking this evening about agriculture. As Tim just mentioned, I used to work in agricultural research. I was um, the principal plant physiologist at ICRASAT, the International Crops Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics in Hyderabad, India. And so agriculture is part of my background. It's not something I often talk about, but it's um, very much part of my being. And I think a lot about the future of agriculture, and I just want to share some thoughts this evening about several aspects of that. Because, as Tim said, we have to make the most of this extraordinary opportunity that we have at the moment. The first thing is we have to change the kind of food we eat, because agriculture is about producing uh, food, uh, but um, the, that's about the supply. But there's also the question of the demand. The population of the world is increasing. Climate change is happening. There's general uh, degradation of soils on a large scale in some parts of the world. Um, there's a loss of biodiversity. We can't just go on as we are at the moment. It won't work. So one of the things that uh, we need to do is change the way we eat. And many people have pointed out that the present system is extraordinarily inefficient. Uh, we grow huge amounts of grains and things like soybean to feed to animals in intensive animal factory farms, like battery chicken uh, farms, um, or intensive raising of beef uh, and pigs and other animals. And only about a tenth of the food that the animals are fed ends up as human food in the form of meat. Nine-tenths is just wasted as part of the inefficiency of this process. If we reduce enormously meat consumption, um, and if we have meat stick only to meat that's grown uh, with animals living outdoors in grass-fed pastures where, in areas where not much else can be grown except grass for animals, um, then uh, we'd free up a huge amount of land and food resources for human consumption. And it's interesting that there's already uh, growth, enormous growth in vegetarian and vegan uh, uh, systems of eating, um, which are largely a response uh, to this crisis. The fact that many people have realized we need to reduce our meat consumption, if not eliminate it. Secondly, Food might be produced in completely different ways in the future. George Monbiot, who is a visionary uh, ecological thinker, um, has gone much further than most, and certainly much further than I would do myself, in suggesting that most of it should be and will be produced in factories, in huge fermentation vats, or in other industrial processes rather than on farms. The land freed up would then be rewilded in Monbiot's vision. But even if we grow, say, mycoprotein in vats, which is already happening, of course, on, on a limited scale, uh, particularly in the product corn, um, even if we grow other microorganisms or other or tissue cultures of animal cells, they have to be fed something. They don't just grow by magic. So there's still going to have to be crop production to produce a feed, even if um, food production becomes more industrial in this benign way that uh, George Monbiot envisions. But what I want to do now is talk more about the starting with actual agriculture rather than the possible phasing out of a lot of it in the future and look at several issues that I think could help. The first is something I became aware of when I was working in India. Most small-scale Indian farmers don't grow monocultures of crops like we do. We're used to the idea of enormous fields full of oilseed rape or wheat or barley or other crops. But that's not how it works in most traditional agricultural systems. What people have is mixed cropping. They grow several crops together in the same field at the same time. I was very surprised when I arrived in India and found that this was what was happening. And some people who were engaged in agricultural aid programs uh, in the 1960s and 70s uh, from the West 
thought that Indians and everyone else ought to be taught, taught how to grow crops like we do. Their vision was of large fields with monoculture, with automated machinery. In fact, quite a lot of tractors were sent to India as part of this vision, and I saw them, um, some of them just rusting in fields. They, they, they didn't send the spare parts, and the whole thing was rather misconceived. Um, most of the fields are very small in traditional family farms, and they're traditionally farmed using bullocks or other ant draft animals. And it's not easy to get tractors into them. And the whole land tenure system um, would be disrupted by that. So there's a lot of manual labor. People farm uh, in fairly small farms traditionally, um, and the harvesting's done by hand. And if you're harvesting by hand, you can easily harvest a mixed crop. Um, one of the most common mixed cropping systems is growing a legume crop like pigeon pea, which is, um, produces peas that are usually eaten as dal, as split peas. It grows into a bush about six feet high. Uh, that's usually planted in alternate rows with a cereal like sorghum or maize. Um, the cereals, uh, they're planted together at the beginning of the monsoon in many parts of India in June. Um, the cereal crop grows and matures in three or four months. It grows quickly. The pigeon pea grows quite slowly and is shaded by the cereal, but it gets established. And then when the cereals harvest, harvested, the pigeon pea has much more space, much more light, um, and it then rapidly grows, fills out the space, and gives a crop uh, several months later. This turned out to be an excellent system. We actually did experiments on these mixed cropping systems and showed that they're more productive, they make more efficient use of the land, and they also uh, reduce the risk, because if there's a drought at a particular stage uh, in, in the season, it might uh, damage the cereal crop, but then the pigeon pea can come on later. Or if there's uh, the droughts later in the season, the cereal might mature and the pigeon pea might not give much yield. But it's a kind of insurance system which is extremely important for small farmers who rely on the food they produce. If they don't produce the food, then they go hungry. So mixed cropping ha has many advantages. It's part of traditional systems, but we don't see very much of it here. The only example I can think of on a large scale is, is the use of grass and clover mixtures in uh, low um, input pasture. Um, there we have the same principle, um, a, grass mem a member of the grass family and um, a legume crop which fixes nitrogen growing together. But it's possible to devise mixed cropping systems which could be suitable for mechanized agriculture which is what we have here. People are already experimenting with growing mixed crops of cereals, mixing wheat and barley, for example, possibly oats. Um, and if you have a mixed crop of different species mixed up together, they're all growing, the seeds are mixed before planting. Um, so they're all jumbled up together. This has several advantages. One of them is that it's much less susceptible to pests and diseases because a disease of one crop may not affect the others. And also the plants are more further apart, the susceptible plants are further apart, so it's harder for the disease to spread. The same is true of pests. And um, the same is true also of environmental stresses. Some of these crops may be more drought resistant than others and fare better in drought years. Of course, for this system to work, it's important to have crops that mature uh, more or less at the same time. Uh, but people have already worked out mixtures uh, which uh, can do this. And you might think, well, what's the use of a mixed cereal crop? Well, there's a lot of uh, bakers now produce multigrain loaves, which are made of mixed cereal. So instead of mixing them after harvest, you can have them mixed before sowing, and then you harvest uh, a seed mixture uh, it's already mixed. Um, another way of growing uh, mixed crops is to have different varieties of the same crop, say wheat, uh, of a similar maturity time. And again, these 
different varieties will have different susceptibilities to diseases and pests, and therefore uh, won't be susceptible in the way that a monoculture is. Um, and therefore, uh, there'll be much less need for the use of pesticides or fungicides or other poisonous sprays. So mixed cropping is something that I think has a, a big future here, and it's only just barely begun to be explored. There's another point I'd like to make in relation to mixed cropping. The reason that we have such enormous fields and such huge pieces of agricultural machinery in Europe and North America uh, is because of labour costs. In the past, farms had a lot of people working on them, uh, but as wage levels rose, uh, farmers tried to reduce labour costs, so you can now have enormous farms with just one or two people working on them, operating enormous pieces of machinery, uh, which cost half a million pounds or more. Um, this means that agriculture is extremely capital intensive uh, because of reducing labour. And the reason the machines are so big is you want a machine that one person can uh, control. Uh, if you had lots of little machines, you'd need lots of people. However, with the advent of self-driving cars and automated technology and smart, uh, mechanized agriculture, it's possible now to have uh, artificial intelligence uh, controlling what machines do. You can even have machines that pick ripe fruit. They look at the fruit on a tree and see which ones, uh, which apples are ripe for picking and which aren't, and pick the ripe ones. Um, these are small-scale machines, not huge, gigantic combine harvesters or enormous machines that you see in fields today. You can make small self-driving cars as well as big ones, and it would be possible to make smart, small uh, agricultural machines uh, that would enable um, mixed crops and uh, the selective harvesting of, of some of, of crops at particular times to be feasible, uh, even in a high labor cost economy. There's no reason why these automated machines have to be big. If they're automated, you could have lots of little ones. Um, even small farmers could have them. Um, and this would lead to, to a completely different way of thinking about what's planted and how it's harvested. So that's one point, mixed cropping. I want to talk next about the soil microbiome. In chemical agriculture, where inorganic fertilizers are poured onto the soil, um, the soil microbiome is greatly impoverished. It's also impoverished through not having enough organic matter. The importance of the microbiome was highlighted by the early pioneers of organic farming, notably Sir Albert Howard, who worked in India and who was one of the founders of the Soil Association. He was one of the first people to highlight the importance of mycorrhizae um, in agriculture. Mycorrhizae are uh, fungal filaments uh, which grow uh, in the soil. They plug into the roots of plants or wrap around them. The plants supply them with food, with nutrients, sugars principally. The mycorrhizae are like an extension of the root system and enable the plant to take up minerals from the soil that their own roots wouldn't be able to do very efficiently. Um, they can mineralize phosphate from rock. Uh, they can also mobilize nitrogen from the soil. So the mycorrhizae uh, extend and make much more efficient the absorptive mechanisms of the roots. However, as soon as you add chemical fertilizers, the activity of the mycorrhizae is suppressed. The same is true of the symbiotic bacteria, rhizobia, uh, which live inside the root nodules of legume crops and fix nitrogen. Uh, those two are suppressed in their activity if you add nitrogen fertilizers. So uh, Sir Albert Howard found not only uh, in organic farms with uh, high content of uh, organic matter in the soil through adding compost, um, not only uh, are the mycorrhizae much more active, they make the plants much healthier and they're able to take up much more uh, from the, the, so the soil than they would without the mycorrhizae. 
So how do we enhance the microbiome of the soils? Well, adding compost is one way. Reducing or eliminating the use of chemical fertilizers is another. But one of the problems that crops up is weeds. And in organic agriculture, the way it's commonly practiced here, at least in Britain, uh, is uses plowing as the, pre, as the main method of weed control. That's the main reason people plow the soil, uh, to turn over the soil, uh, to bury weeds. Um, the trouble is that plowing the soil uh, greatly disrupts the whole soil ecosystem. It's a massive disruption of the, all the microbiome, the mycorrhizal threads that are established within the soil. So from that point of view, a better system is minimum or zero tillage, uh, where crops are planted without plowing. The trouble there is that the main systems of minimal or zero tillage um, involve the use of Roundup glyphosate, a chemical weed killer, um, uh, which uh, in small doses uh, can eliminate weeds from fields and it, it can be very useful in these minimum tillage systems, um, which also save on uh, the fuel for the plows, the, the, the carbon used up in the plowing. So those can greatly help. Um, and some people see them as ecologically beneficial, even though they involve applying chemicals. The trouble is glyphosate uh, is toxic to some mycorrhizae, maybe to all, uh, and so is not an ideal treatment. So there needs to be research on finding optimal ways of reducing tillage and preserving the soil microbiome uh, without using very much glyphosate or without using any at all. That's a research frontier which um, is completely open at the moment and some people in the organic and conservation agriculture movements are looking at this uh, quite seriously. Um, but it's not easy, there's no simple one-size-fits-all answer. But we've got to do this and we've got to find better ways of improving microbiomes and one model is from faecal transplants. Um, <coughs> as everyone now knows, we have a microbiome in our guts, and sometimes deficient microbiomes lead to digestive problems, even mental health problems. Um, and so faecal transplants are basically transplanting a whole mixture of microorganisms from one person's gut to another. There are different methods of doing this, and I'm not going to go into them here now. Um, Anyway, the point is, it's about a mixture. It's not a purified single uh, bacterium. And I think for inoculating soils, uh, especially when new crops are being grown that haven't been grown before, um, uh, the, in the past, we've had people think you have a single strain of a rhizobium or of a mycorrhiza, but it's much better, I think, to use the faecal transplant model and have an effective mixture because these things occur in mixtures, not in pure strains. The next point I want to discuss is the use of human wastes. Um, when I was working in India, I worked for a while up on the frontiers of Tibet in Lahul district of Himachal Pradesh. And it was a very remote village on the border of Tibet, and I was staying with a Tibetan-speaking family. The culture was Tibetan there and the people spoke Tibetan. Um, there was nowhere else to stay. I was doing research on chickpeas, and that was the one of the few places that we could grow them in the summer. They normally grow in the winter in the plains of India. Um, I had to stay in the house of a Tibetan family, um, in the farmhouse. And I found that their lavatory arrangements were very remarkable. They had a a kind of extension to the house and there were, you went onto a kind of platform and there was a hole in the floor and all the human waste dropped down into straw. It didn't smell particularly badly. Um, and all the human waste from everyone in the family went into this uh, straw compost uh, manure uh, area and then that was added back to the land every year. So their human wastes were completely recycled. In China, travelers in the early 20th century I said how when you approach cities, there were uh, little booths by the side of the room, which were basically public toilets. And 
there were people there inviting travelers to use their toilets. They were providing a free service. And the reason they were doing that was because they were collecting this human waste. It was a very valuable resource for fertilizing the fields. What we do, by contrast, is flush human waste down lavatories with huge quantities of water and uh, flush them all away, and then they could have to go to sewage farms and create sewage disposal problems. Sometimes the raw sewage goes into rivers or the sea. Meanwhile, we make urea, the main nitrogen compound in urine, that's why it's called urea, we make that in factories uh, using enormous amounts of energy by fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere, uh, and that's used as a chemical fertilizer in fields. This is completely crazy. We're throwing away all this human waste, wasting human waste, um, and uh, making synthetically things to replace it. I think that one thing, I mean, composting toilets are one possibility. Using urine is the simplest possibility, especially for men. A lot of men pee in their compost heaps. I do myself. Um, and this is a small-scale way of dealing with it. But um, another way would be to use the human waste in biogas digesters together with kitchen waste. Many London boroughs, and I'm sure boroughs all around the country, now collect kitchen waste on a weekly basis. It's put in huge biogas digesters uh, where it um, is used to uh, produce biogas, which then is used to make electricity. Now, what if when people were building new blocks of flats, there was a special system where the plumbing from the lavatories went into, uh, with minimum water added, uh, went into a biogas digester in the basement. And there could also be a chute whereby people's food waste went into the biogas digester. You then have a very good mixture uh, of a uh, combination of nitrogen-rich human wastes with um, other wastes from kitchens and from uh, biological wastes, uh, which would produce biogas within the apartment building, um, which could be used to uh, produce some of the electricity that was needed. The What came out, the slurry that came out of the digester, uh, could then be used as fertilizer. It would be um, extremely high-value fertilizer. And if people were worried about human waste on vegetable crops, it could be used on other kinds of crops, um, or in orchards, or in uh, even to fertilize fast-growing biofuels. So I think the present system with human waste is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we're wasting this vast quantity of human waste instead of uh, recycling it. And the technologies are now readily available for doing that. And uh, it would most easily be done by, as I say, in new builds, uh, by plumbing the system in such a way that this could happen. Now, the <clears throat> the final point I want to make is about family orchards. And this is something which I think could be widely applied in many European countries and, and in many other parts of the world. Right now, if you want to grow your own fruit or um, vegetables, you have a very limited choice. Either you have a house with a big garden, which is going to be very expensive because gardens attached to houses are expensive. They're in residential areas and not many people can afford houses with big gardens. Or you can have an allotment, which is very small uh, and not at all private and functional. And this is good, and there ought to be a lot more allotments. There's a lot of demand for them that's unsatisfied in many parts of the country. Uh, so one of the things that should happen after this lockdown is an enormous increase in the provision of allotments, both by private uh, uh, landowners and also by local authorities. Um, but if you want to do something on a larger scale, it's almost impossible at the moment. If you buy farmland, Farms, you have to buy hundreds of acres. Farms are large, and you don't want to buy a huge farm just because you want to you have enough land to have a family orchard. So I think there's a completely unmet demand here, an implicit demand which could be satisfied relatively easily. Look at this from the point of view of a landowner. If you own land near a town or city, 
you're not going to sell the land to people because it might get development approval and worth, become and worth millions instead of about £10,000 an acre. The agricultural land price, it could be worth a million as a development uh, opportunity. Um, so you're not going to sell it, um, but you could lease it. And if you, say, divided an acre into five fifth of an acre plots, which would be about 90 feet by 90 feet, um, you'd have an area which could be then become a family orchard. There could be hedges around them. They could be private. People could plant heritage fruit trees. They could plant pears, plums, peaches, um, inside the warmer parts of the country, um, and other fruit trees, uh, damsons and so forth, soft fruit, um, raspberries, strawberries, um, gooseberries. There could be space for vegetables, uh, on a larger scale than in an allotment. There could be a kind of permaculture type possibility here. Um, and such family orchards um, could be leased to people. Now, if there were one available near you, how much would you be able to pay a year to lease a, a, a family orchard where you could go with your family, where your children could play, where you could grow your fruit, where you could have parties and barbecues? Well, what, £1,000 a year, £20 a week? I think that would be a very reasonable rent. I think that would be a good starting point for this project. Think, of, think in terms of £1,000 uh, a year. It would probably be, by supply and demand, the market would probably find a price much above that. Um, but say it's £1,000 as a conservative estimate. That's five fifth of an acre orchards in an acre of land, each bringing in a thousand pounds a year. That's five thousand pounds a year rent. Right now, if a landowner uh, leases out uh, land for pasture, the going rate is roughly fifty pounds a year rent, and for arable, a hundred, maybe a hundred and fifty. So instead of a hundred pounds a year um, rent, the landowner would get five thousand pounds a year rent. And obviously, if there were several more acres, then four acres would bring in £20,000. The start-up costs would be rather small. You'd have to provide paths. There'd have to be a car parking area. Preferably, uh, they'd be accessible by bicycle, near bicycle tracks. So most people could go to them by bicycle rather than car. There'd have to be access paths. Um, hand pumps um, or possibly water supplies with taps if there's a public water supply nearby. A few pieces of infrastructure would need to be put in place. But basically, uh, if these orchards were, were made available, um, and if the leases were fairly long, 10 years, say, uh, renewable, um, I think this could be enormously attractive to a, a lot of families. The biodiversity would be vastly greater than if the field remained part of, if the orchard remained part of a monoculture field growing oilseed rape or wheat or something. Um, there'd be enormous increase in biodiversity. It'd be enormously helpful for people's health and uh, well-being. Uh, it would create a much larger local supply of food um, because these private plots would be, as in the Soviet Union, the private plots produced a huge proportion of the food. Um, uh, they're much more productive uh, in terms of food production per acre, even than modern industrial agriculture. Um, and I think if somebody showed that this system could work, that it was viable um, uh, and attractive, and there was a demand for it, I think there'd be articles about these family orchards in colour supplements and um, uh, on news programmes, and there'd be a demand all over the country for them. Um, and uh, people would, uh, because it wouldn't require subsidies, it would be profitable for landowners to supply the demand. Um, I think they could spring up all over the place. I very much hope that a trial run of this scheme could happen at Dartington, perfectly placed. Uh, Totnes has the perfect um, catchment area for a family orchard scheme. The Dartington estate goes right up to Totnes. It has a kind of visionary purpose, always has had, um, not only through its educational wing, but also through experimenting with agriculture and forestry. And I think that this could tie in 
very well with the Schumacher College programs in sustainable agriculture and horticulture. So um, this is a scheme, I think, that could be implemented quite quickly at very little uh, cost. Uh, it would be profitable, so it's not going to require huge bank loans like buying a farm and buying farm equipment. Um, and I think it's something that could actually be transformative for people's lives and have a serious effect on food security and food production. Well, so those are some of the ideas about new ways forward in agriculture that I wanted to share with you today. Um, and let me just recapitulate them. Um, first of all, mixed cropping, uh, exploring the possibilities for mixed cropping in uh, farms, commercial farms uh, in Britain and in Europe and in North America. Um, secondly, looking at the soil microbiome and finding ways of improving the soil microbiome and improving uh, organic matter levels in the soil. Some people have worked out that if carbon content of the soil were increased by incorporating, incorporating much more compost and agricultural wastes, uh, this would actually take an awful lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and have a serious effect. Um, there's more agricultural land than forest land uh, would have a serious effect in uh, reducing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Uh, so this is more than just about crop production. It, it could have a direct effect on the climate, the climate change problem. So the soil microbiome, um, then using human wastes, um, if you're not already doing it, you can start by peeing in your compost heap um, and um, or using urine uh, diluted one in ten in watering cans. Um, it's easiest for men, but uh, it's not rocket science to find out ways in which women can be part of this as well. Um, and then uh, more visionary schemes where by using new plumbing systems and biogas systems, um, combining uh, human wastes with kitchen wastes, um, the possibility of uh, using this material and then ending up with a very usable fertilizer as well as uh, using the energy that's otherwise being wasted. And um, then finally, the idea of family orchards uh, with the possibility of doing something of this kind at Dartington, uh, with possibly with Schumacher College itself in the lead. So that's a summary of the ideas I wanted to share. And now um, I'm looking forward to the chance to discuss some of this with Colm, uh, because Colm uh, is uh, much more experienced than I am in the practical side of um, running forest gardens and, um, and gardening um, and horticulture. Um, so um, if Colm's there, then... Um, Let's um, let's see what uh, what what Colm says. So, Colm, are you there? You can, can, you, yeah, can oh, you hear me? Good, good. I can hear you. I can see you as well. That's great. So, I, anyway, what do you think of the family orchard idea, Colm, or any of these other ideas? Yeah, I, I'm, I think the family orchard idea is a is a, is a brilliant idea. I, I often um, notice with people who come and work here with me at the student, but in the at the college in the food growing areas, how many of them talk about the inspiration behind how they got into food growing and it's often related to spending time on allotments or gardens with their grandparents or parents. So I, I think um, as well as all the other benefits we're talking about, anything we can do to expose children and people to food growing and nature is, 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 a, is a good one. And it it's also links into uh, what Stefan Harding was saying a couple of weeks ago on one of these Earth Talks. He was talking about a need to just all to fall in love with Gaia in, in the contents of the COVID-19 crisis. And I think you know, if we're going to be able to fall in love with Gaia, we need to have the opportunity to, to start that off. And as, as I say, children is, is, is the best place to start, I think. Yes, well, good. I'm glad you like the idea. I mean, I, I agree. I think, that, well, I think actually I'm a case in point. We had a family orchard when I was a child where my father rented about a fifth of an acre um, it was in the centre of Newark, where I, I grew up in Nottinghamshire. 
And we actually had an orchard and vegetables, just what I'm describing, which is one of the things that made me attracted to do biology in the first place. And it had a huge influence on my life. And I thought at first this was just a kind of unique situation that I was in, and it was a kind of something with these, the family orchards were then bulldozed and turned into a school playing field. So I thought this was just something that happened to me in the past, and it was a nice memory. Then I realized there's absolutely no reason why this shouldn't happen on a large scale again, and and, and where children could be very much part of it. Uh, there could be, um, in a, if there was a family orchard system near Totnes, for example, there could be one of the orchards that was used by a local school. So it would be possible to take schools there for a class and they could actually do gardening. Most schools don't have enough ground at the school itself to do gardening there. But if they had one of these family orchards, it could be a school orchard. Mm-hmm. And all over the country, there could be school orchards where, uh, and then school children can actually eat some of the food that they've helped produce. Exactly. And, and I think the other thing we've seen in the COVID-19 thing is, is the explosion of interest in local food. And while we have a, a great a plethora of um, schemes here, we just the, the, the Totnes area hasn't been able to keep up with the demand. And I think anything like that that also helps people to feed themselves and also they could feed their surplus into schools and their local communities is, is excellent. And it, it feeds into the idea of resilience, like you're saying, with a mixed cropping system. The, the more diversity of supplies of food we have, that the stronger the, the whole system is. Yes. Well, I suppose that if there were these family orchards, then some of the principles that have been experimented on through permaculture could be applied in them. Some people could run their family orchard as a, basically as a permaculture system. Well, I mean, orchards are kind of permaculture anyway. Um, so I think if, if they existed on any scale, I mean, if there were lots, hundreds of them throughout the country, then I think there could also be innovation. People who have them could experiment and find out what works and what doesn't work and new ways of doing permaculture-type schemes within them and then share these ideas on online forums. I think it could unleash a whole lot of grassroots experimentation in terms of efficient production of of, um, food and and good utilisation of the land. Definitely. And also, I think it just feeds into community as well. I mean, one of the things I love about working here at the college is when we're all working together or maybe not right next to each other, but near each other, you can share ideas in food growing and music and you can come together at the end of the day and eat your harvest. And, and that's a really good way of bringing people together on, on, a, on a common ground, as it were. And, and it's not just on the online forums. You could be sharing ideas with each other within the, that individual family orchard setting and then that could spread out around your local area what do you think of the peeing in the compost idea i mean this must be something that's occurred to you oh i think it's excellent i mean we we have our compost loo where we separate out our urine and our feces here and i've actually found that um the the best plant food i can make is dilute urine so um i usually tend to use it at home not so much here but it it, um the seedlings that i raise on on dilute urine are, are the healthiest i've ever produced and it's free. And like you say, I'm, I'm using a, a, a source that's uh, not otherwise be thrown away. Yes. Well, I think there's a, I, mean, I don't know how many people are, uh, are doing this anyway. It's not the kind of thing people usually talk about. No. Um, but um, I was once having dinner at a Cambridge college with a, a colleague of mine. And I, I, I just, for some, he was talking about his garden and his compost heap. And I said, do you pee in your compost? And he said, well, he looked around to see if anyone was listening. He said, well, uh, yes, I do, actually. And then someone heard him. He said, well, I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> so there's probably a lot more going on than we um, think of. I, I myself was got the idea in, 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 in most graphic form when I visited the Centre for Intermediate Technology in McCuntleth in Wales. And they had a demonstration thing. They had a straw, two straw bales side by side. One of them was just the straw bale. The other one was where male members of staff peed on it when they were passing. Or, and the, the difference couldn't have been more stark. One was a virtually undecomposed straw bale, and the other one was a pile of black humus-like material where the straw had broken down so much more quickly because it had this nitrogen supply. Yeah, we, we've actually recently changed over our urine 
separation so that urine gets poured onto a, a straw bale for that reason and also to get the carbon and nitrogen balance right. But we've got, we've got a few people were commenting on the chat about um, sort of pharmaceutical drugs and so on in the in the human waste. Do you know much about that and whether whether it's an issue if you're using it on food? I don't know. Obviously, this is a point that has to be looked into. I mean, a lot of pharmaceutical drugs would decompose over time. I mean, most most one would have to look at which ones might be a problem, and people who are having drugs that are a problem would be asked not politely asked not to pee on the straw bales or into the urine separation system. Um, I think that a, a lot of common drugs, you know, aspirin, steroids, uh, uh, paracetamol, um, all these kinds of things would biodegrade fairly quickly. Mm. There might be uh, antibiotics too would probably biodegrade um, as well. And so I think that, well, that's the kind of thing one needs to research on. But it's very unlikely they'd be so persistent that they'd survive the composting process, survive being in the soil for months, and survive and be taken up by plants. And, and it's possible some might, but um, again, this is something we'll have to look into. Yeah. But and 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 you and ask people who are taking huge amounts of medications, who, you know, not to take part in this scheme. But for the majority of people, I think it would be absolutely fine. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've also seen systems where people are using it to fertilise crops that aren't being eaten by humans. So there's, a, there's a place called Ragman's Lane in, in Gloucestershire where they, they use the overflow from their septic tank to fertilise willow beds and then they, they harvest the willow for firewood. So it doesn't just have to be used for food, does it? And then, of course, then the ash could then be fed into the, into the food system. But there are ways of using it in an, in an intermediary crop that wouldn't go for human consumption. And then you, you eradicate all the issues. Like yes, that. well, exactly. That would be the safest and simplest. But, you know, I'm sure that research would be able to show whether germs, I mean, E. coli, which can be pathogenic and it's in feces, uh, I mean, it's not going to survive composting and, and in the soil for long. I mean, I think uh, this is the kind of applied research that should be going on in universities and, you know, to find out just how much possible survival of pathogens there are how much danger there is i suspect it'd be very little but as you say using it for biofuels like willow would be uncontroversial and that was certainly a good place to begin well maybe we should um open up to uh, questions yeah thank you thanks uh, both of you so much so there's been an awful lot of chat in the box about um, everybody having equality of opportunity for peeing in the in the compost heap and clearly a number of people enjoying it and also with recipes of how to do it so um, so that's great <laughs> i think it's interesting and quite a number of the questions that we've had so far have been exactly around the issue of pharmaceuticals in um urine and or in feces the the way in which you might be able to eliminate that or or not um, and I think it's quite interesting that notion of taking a side route, so to going through a reed bed and perhaps um, being able to recycle your material through that. But I wonder, particularly at the moment with COVID, um, thinking to the future, and this being unlikely to be the only time when we have something like a virus or, or um, whatever, which creates this kind of uh, scare around the globe, where would COVID sit in a situation like this? Would we be desperately needing to shut down the pipes that went to our fields? Are there additional issues that come from viruses and from bacteria that we, we aren't thinking of at this stage? Well, I don't think viruses um, survive very long outside the human body. I mean, the, 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 I don't think, you know, COVID's supposed to linger on plastic for a day or two or something. Uh, the idea that it would actually survive for weeks in, in composting systems and in, in the soil, I think is very, very unlikely. I've never heard of anyone catching a virus from the soil or from food grown in the soil. And after all, viruses are everywhere all the time. It's not just COVID. I mean, I've never heard of anyone catching flu from compost or, uh, you know, the, the means of transmission is normally through the air or through hand contact, all the things mm. we've been hearing about. So I don't think that's going to be a problem. And I think the other thing is that one could find out 
you know, what happens in parts of the world like China and Tibet, where they've done this for centuries. Mm, mm. We're squeamish about these things. I mean, the British, I think, invented water closets and flushing away uh, all the uh, wastes. Before that, they went into pits and they were collected as night soil, and that was used on the land. I mean, until relatively recently, that was happening all over Europe. So there's an enormous amount of experience from different parts of the world, including parts of the world where they're still using human waste. Um, it's not a very glamorous research topic, but um, it's one where um, it should be quite possible to do research and, and find out useful answers quite quickly. Mm. Thank you, Rupert. A number of questions are around, um, I think your suggestion about Roundup and so on, um, in no-tillage systems, and I think a number of points about um, Monsanto and, and the amount of compensation they're, they're due to pay out in relation to things like Roundup. So I suppose I'd be interested to hear more about other solutions to no-tillage, and maybe also, Colm, you might have a, some suggestions here, other um, solutions that don't involve some form of pesticide or a, a herbicide in order to be able to clear the ground. Well, I'm, I haven't come, I've been reading about this subject recently, and I haven't come across many. I mean, it would be obviously wonderful if there was something like that. One system I came across was uh, somebody who's growing organically old heritage varieties of quite tall cereals. They, mm. All cereals used to be tall. Um, and one advantage of tall cereals is that they shade out the weeds. They overgrow the weeds and shade them out. Um, we now have dwarf cereals because if you add nitrogen fertilizer to tall cereals, they grow even taller and fall over. Lodging is the name for that um, and so tall cereals are hardly grown now but under organic conditions uh, this chap's growing tall cereals and under sowing them with clover and so what's happening is it gets ground cover with the clover that suppresses the weeds and the tall cereals as they grow shade out the clover which then dies and um, you then have a system where you you've got weed control by uh, undersowing something. Now, that sounds a really good system, and, but I've not heard of many people doing that. Um, and it does rely on, on, on relatively low fertility and relatively low yields. I don't know, Colm, do you have ideas on this? Well, yeah, in, in the horticulture context, there are various techniques we use at the college. I mean, one of, one of which is you can use black plastic, obviously, to, to block out the light and then kill anything off. But obviously, that has the disadvantage of using lots of plastic. Um, and if, if you can keep on top of your perennial weeds, then you can, um, and you're just growing annual crops and, and trying to grow annual green manures, then there are other ways of terminating those like hoeing or very shallow ploughing, which doesn't disturb the soil quite so much. I mean, the other thing that we also do here is that we have an agroforestry system. So we have permanent um, pieces of ground with grass and, and mixed wildflowers and fruit trees in. So that if we do disturb the soil, there's banks of mycorrhizal fungi and so on that can very quickly come back into the soil. So it, it, I think that there's, there's lots of different techniques. There's no one silver bullet. But if you mm. can try and reduce the amount you turn the soil by looking at the crops you grow and how you manage it, and, but also having banks of ground that can then help to re, recreate good soil. I mean, we're also experimenting with um, making our own mycorrhizal inoculants here as well. So that's another thing you can do is you can add those when you plant your plants to try and... Um, make up for any damage you do when you when you disturb the soil mm. but i i mean i i'm myself quite passionately against glyphosate use and i think one of the other questions in the, the chat box was talking about how um some the, the companies often say that the the chemicals will will disappear very quickly but they're just looking at a very narrow part of the overall spray so a lot of chemicals within the spray still persist in in the water table for a long time afterwards but because of the active ingredient that kills the plant off does break down quickly they can then say well it doesn't matter because it's breaking down within a very short amount of time but that's not really being honest with, with the truth. No well I'm not pro glyphosate either but um, in fact I was dead against it until I got into a discussion with uh, an agricultural colleague who uh, in, someone I used to work with in India who's very very keen on the conservation agriculture system which does use glyphosate in limited quantities just to clear the soil at the beginning and then use minimum tillage and he's passionately in favor of that because 
of, of the preserving the structure of the soil and saving all that fuel that's used in plowing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he makes a good case for it. And he rather persuaded me that um, used in very limited way, it could be, if not a good thing, at least not that bad. Uh, what's really bad is when people drench the standing crop with glyphosate, and especially when they uh, spray crops just before harvest yeah. to make them die so they dry up and they can be harvested more promptly. Um, then, of course, you've got the crop itself is drenched in it and glyphosate residues get into the grain, and, and um, who knows what health effects they have. Uh, Whereas uh, he, his argument for conservation agriculture is just, uh, just at the moment of sowing one application only at the beginning before the crops develop, before you um, sow the crop. Um, so, I mean, there are people who make that case. And the reason I mentioned it is because he persuaded me that um, the general use of deep ploughing or quite deep ploughing in organic agriculture to control weeds is is not a necessarily a good feature. It's I mean, many, many good things about organic agriculture, and I buy organic food myself because I think it's so important to support it and avoid poisons in the food. But um, it does have that downside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, in terms of the, the mixed cropping um, opportunity that you were talking about, and certainly the agroforestry, which I've seen at, at um, Dartington, at Schumacher, are there examples of that being scaled up um, to points where it is, it is providing large food systems, or are they nearly all small, um, uh, you know, relatively low acreage systems? Well, there are examples of, of mixed cereal cropping um, going on in, in, in farmers' fields and um, in agricultural research stations. Um, you know, I've actually seen serious fields of, of mixed cereals. Uh, um, so people are actually doing that, but I don't know how widespread the, the use of that is. Um, as I say, the, the area where it's always been traditional is... Uh, in when you sow meadows, uh, if you're sowing pasture uh, without high nitrogen inputs, then mixing in clover with the grass, you can actually buy commercially um, mixed seed for sowing those kinds of uh, pastures. So that's happening on a large scale. Um, but um, I don't know how large scale the use of mixed cereals is. Um, or other mixed crops here in Britain. I've, I mean, looking as I travel around the country, I'm sort of always looking to see what's growing and how people are doing it. And I, I've seen very few examples of it. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. They, they, are, they are talking about agroforestry on the arches now, so um, maybe it's about to <laughs> go big. But it's, it's interesting how, it, 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 as a system, it does actually increase your overall yield. If you have the trees separate and the crops separate, on the same amount of land, you'd have a lower yield. So it makes economic sense. So I, I think, I, I'm, I'm sure it will get bigger. It just takes time. Yeah, and perhaps some of those um, cropping systems that you talked about earlier on might be the way. Julian Parfit asks, um, since your time in India, looking at mixed cropping systems, there's been immense change in agri-systems and net migration to cities. Has the importance of mixed cropping been maintained in some of those systems, uh, given its importance uh, in f- in the face of climate stresses? Well, I can't answer that because I haven't been in Indian villages for you know, 10 years, and so I just don't know what's happening today. There's certainly been a large migration to cities, but the population of the villages hasn't gone down because the population is still going up as a whole. So it's not as if you've got depopulated villages in India. Um, the last time I was there, actually I was in a village about five years ago in Rajasthan, and I cycled around to look at the fields and talk to farmers. Um, and so there, at least in that part of India, I saw quite a bit of mixed cropping still going on, and it was still small-scale agriculture. You certainly didn't get, didn't get the feeling the village was depopulated. It was teeming with people. Um, so um, the, um, I suspect it's still going on. Uh, whenever there's enough labour, family farms and small family farms, uh, it's so much more efficient and has so many advantages. There's no reason for people to give it up. 
it's the only reason people give it up is when you have consolidation of farms in large scale farms. Like in Africa, now the Chinese and others are trying to consolidate the land and have huge commercial farms, which is, of course, displacing peasant farmers who they regard as inefficient. Um, um, but uh, I just don't know enough to answer that question. It's something that it would be well worth investigating in India and elsewhere. Mm. That's good. Somebody here, Karen White, has, um, has made a, a note in the chat about organic farming in tropical Australia often use chickens and boiling water for weed control. And I know quite a number of local councils are starting to drop glyphosate and are using kind of boiling water as the means of being able to kill weeds um, on the basis that it only affects the first sort of um, inch or something of the soil and doesn't get any further than that. So. The trouble is boiling to create huge quantities of boiling water obviously needs lots of energy. Yeah. So unless there's a way of producing boiling water using solar power, which can be done by concentrating mirrors and things, but it's not something you could do on every farm and have tractors with sort of tanks of boiling water. I mean, you can do it on a small scale. I can't see this working on a 50-acre field. We, we did have... Um an experiment here that didn't happen in the end, but there was a plan for someone to come and demonstrate a system that involves le electrocuting weeds. Um, I don't know how much energy that uses, but that's another possible alternative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's various suggestions here around vinegar killing weeds um, and so on as well. So I think there's... Um, there's... Is, the challenge with vinegar is it doesn't, it doesn't kill the, the roots often, so you'll, you'll kill the top of the plant and then the, and then the plant will come back again. So it's, it's okay. not a good solution. Brilliant. I'm just looking through to make sure I've tr tried to pick out the, the most um, useful ones. There's some great chat going on and some really useful um, uh, evidence-based uh, research material there about the potential dangers of certain types of feces and so on. There was a lovely comment here, which I think is really interesting, um, from uh, Erica Lewis, who says, when we got environmental agency consent for the compost loose at our transition home um, scheme, the greatest concern about the compost produced is the presence of heavy metals, as she thinks it's from meat eating, um, and we would be required to test for it um, in the compost produced regularly. The plan is to use the compost on the orchard that's shared by the whole scheme. Um, so clearly there are some issues there that we really need to get the Environment Agency to, to understand, and I think your point about um, needing to undertake the research is incredibly important uh, to be able to take this forward. Um, I think we might be about at the end of the of the um, discussion, but I don't know if there's anything finally that you'd want to say, Rupert. Um, I think it's been a, a fascinating talk and some really interesting practical ideas. Well, I just hope that something like the Family Orchard Scheme will happen somewhere soon, and, and I really hope that it's something you'll be able to discuss at Dartington and, uh, you know, with the people who manage the estate. Um, I know Santish Kumar is very keen on it, and I wrote an article about it in Resurgence at his suggestion. Um, and so I think it would be a, a marvellous way in which Dartington could actually take the lead, uh, not just locally, but as, as a model that, that could actually spread across Britain and also to other countries. I'm sure if this took off, it would took, take off quite fast. Mm. No, that's brilliant. Well... Thank you so much. I think it's been a fascinating talk and some, some really great ideas and some, some brilliant things that um, we can all ponder on. Um, and I'm popping out to pee in the compost heap in just a minute. But <laughs> I'd like to thank you all again for joining us tonight and supporting the work of Schumacher College. Next week's our last talk in this series, and we're really delighted to have Lila June Johnson with her talk uh, titled Mindfulness, Healing and Racism, Cultivating Right Relations. So anyone who's seen Lila talk before will know that it's likely to be a combination of talk, musical performance and poetry reading, uh, which I hope you'll also all want to attend. I've one really looking forward to it. So I hope that Rupert and Colm's talk and conversation has whetted your appetite, in which case I'd point you towards Rupert's books and his website, as well as quite a number of the links that were in the, in the chat. So I'd co get copied some of those down and I'll leave the, um, the uh, webinar running for the next few minutes if you want to note down some of those links. But I'd point you towards Rupert's books and his website, as well as numerous talks you can find online. 
We've also got a number of short courses and postgraduate programmes at Schumacher College which deal with very similar themes, including our MA in Engaged Ecology, but most notably our MSc in Holistic Science, which at this moment of climate emergency, of extreme ecological and social changes, questions the role of science as cause and solution to the world's problems. It presents a rigorous inquiry into the methods, techniques and philosophical underpinnings of science to address whether they can take us beyond mere explanation to a deeper understanding of the world and our place within it. It asks if there is a way science could be done differently. So please do look at our website, subscribe to our mailing list and follow us on Twitter for information on courses, future Earth Talks and events. This has been our 10th online Earth Talk and we would love to have your feedback on how we can continue to improve and also we'd love to hear about the issues, topics or speakers you'd like to see in the future. So can I thank you all again for your very um, active participation and thank once again Rupert Sheldrake and Colin Pawson. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, and good night.